This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, will the shake-up at the MOD change anything for ordinary service personnel? It's important that the sailors, soldiers, airmen and marines have confidence that their interests are being looked after and that good decisions are being made at the top of the shop. And Gaddafi, wanted for crimes against humanity. Gaddafi is now a fugitive from international justice and we will not let up until the job is done. Headlines. A High Court judge has blocked attempts by the families of three soldiers killed in snatched Land Rovers in Iraq to seek compensation from the government. They had argued the Ministry of Defence breached their human rights by failing to provide armoured vehicles capable of offering appropriate protection. At least half the state schools in England and Wales have been disrupted by striking teachers who are angry about changes to their pensions. Civil servants have also walked out, affecting ports, airports, courts and coast guard stations. The number of suspected terrorists arrested by police almost halved last year. New Home Office figures show there were a total of 125 arrests compared to 209 the previous year. One third of those arrests resulted in a charge. Half of those charges were terror-related. And the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge arrive in Canada today, the royal couple's first official overseas tour. Thousands are expected to greet the royal couple when they touch down in the capital, Ottawa, before visiting six more Canadian cities. It's almost 30 years since Lord Levine first tried to reform a major part of the way the Ministry of Defence is run and the recommendations in his report published this week apparently amount to the biggest shake-up at the MOD in a generation. While the three service chiefs gain more control over spending, they're shut out of the main decision-making body, the Defence Board. Paul Osborne's been looking at that report. It's overly bureaucratic, indecisive, tied up in red tape and wasting billions of pounds. After a year-long review, Lord Levine's portrait of the Ministry of Defence is anything but flattering. His solution? Cut whole layers of senior management, such as the Commanders-in-Chief, number two in each of the services. Keep staff in key positions for longer, so they're responsible for projects from start to finish. And stop the Service Chief's internal rivalries as each fights for their corner. The Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, says they've got to start thinking as a unified force, not three squabbling brothers. The report has recommended that we create a new Joint Forces Command. It would include the permanent Joint Headquarters and be led by a new four-star commander and providing a natural home for some of the capabilities of the future, such as cyber, as well as reinforcing joint thinking, joint behaviours and the new generation of officers within defence. The service chiefs will get more control over their budgets, but the price for that freedom is high. They'll no longer sit on the defence board, the top table, where strategy is framed. Instead, the chief of the defence staff will represent all three. Former Army Chief General Lord Dannett fears that may be a mistake. Their chiefs, the ones in charge, feel that they have got a stake still in the big decisions in defence. And it's important that they have that stake so that the sailors, soldiers, airmen and marines underneath them have confidence that their interests are being looked after and that good decisions are being made at the top of the shop. But his predecessor as Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mike Jackson, is less concerned about the change. The function of the Ministry of Defence is to get the best military capability from the money it's given. Now, who's a member of which 
committee is, is very much a subset of getting that right. Ministers have clearly had enough of the public criticism from senior military figures and the bickering between the services as they struggle to impose deep cuts. But senior Lib Dem Samin Campbell isn't sure that the government should be so quick to ignore their warnings. When senior commanders, both in public and private, express reservations about the sustainability of current operations, does he not have a scintilla of doubt about the match between commitments and resources. Liam Fox, though, insists the military and their political masters must send a single clear message, and he's convinced, too, that Lord Levine's blueprint will deliver that. It is a thorough and compelling analysis that deserves close attention. I am confident that when people within defence review the recommendations, they will recognise this work not as a criticism but a constructive critique of a department in need of reform and that they will relish, as I do, the challenges that it represents. But old habits die hard and plans to reform the MOD have a habit of coming unstuck. Paul Osborne reporting. Well, on the line is the man behind the shake-up at the MOD, Lord Levine. Lord Levine, thanks for your time today. You describe a department apparently out of control where internal battles are constant. What state is the MOD in? Well, first of all, let me say this, that uh, uh, this is being portrayed as something I sat down and wrote. Uh, I was actually chairman of a group of nine people, both from within and without the MOD, including uh, the vice chief of defence staff. And this was a very carefully worked through report. And I have to say, at the end of the day, all our recommendations in it uh, were unanimous. And although it may be portrayed as um, setting some of the chiefs at war with others, that isn't the way I think they see it. And uh, I think what, what we found, basically, was a department. And why, why did all this get such a high profile? Because uh, it was shown that the Ministry of Defence was overcommitted uh, in terms of its programme for the next 10 years by £38 billion. Pounds. I mean, that's a colossal amount of money. And the, the, the system was broke. The system didn't work. And I have to say that with all the publicity this report and the conclusions this report has been given, uh, I've come across very few uh, people at the senior level who actually don't agree with it and say, look, we know that something's got to be done and this sounds like a good way forward and that's what we're trying to do. So in general, what is the consensus about the state of the MOD? Uh, that it's broken. It needs serious fixing. How important then is your idea of a single defence framework? Well, uh, the MOD is a single body. It encompasses the uh, three services. It encompasses the, the civil servants who work there. And you can't have everybody going off and doing their own thing and saying, well, I'm not interested in what you're doing. I'm going to run my piece of the action. This is trying to achieve what is, I know, not easy. It's trying to achieve uh, a situation where the, the parts of it work together. Um, but at the same time, I mean, nobody's suggesting any of these ideas like we. Canadians tried some time ago of actually having one defence force where everybody wears the same uniform, and that absolutely didn't work, and we, we never even thought about that. Uh, but in trying to get one uh, group to work together throughout the whole of the defence requirement, um, with a lot of goodwill on all sides, uh, we believe and we hope, and ministers and serving uh, officers, both military and civilian, believe that this is the right way to go forward. One of your recommendations is that senior individuals should be responsible for delivering within their budgets um, and a service chief should be held accountable if they mess up, uh, being sacked presumably. 
we, we haven't specified how this is going to happen, but, you know, anybody in any senior job in any walk of life is accountable and responsible for what they do. And if they don't do it well, well, then the, the result is, is usually obvious. But we're not, we're not going around saying all these people are incompetent. We're saying that the system under which they were working and the system under which they had to work together wasn't delivering what was required. And therefore, we put forward these proposals, which we hope will be a better way of achieving it and giving everybody a better result at the end of the day. How do you respond to the view by some people that um, rivalry within the armed forces is actually, inter-service rivalry, is actually quite healthy? Well, it depends, it depends what it's for. Um, the, the funds, and, and I, I don't apologise for keep coming back to this question of money because that's where the problem came from in the first place. The funds that are available are finite. Now, you can have a discussion about it, but once it's been decided, and I think this is one of the reasons why on the Defence Board you have one senior uniformed officer, who would be the Chief of the Defence Staff, who has to look at the whole programme in the round and with the ministers and with the others who are responsible for running the department decide where those resources are going to be spent. Now, does that mean that the Chief of the Defence Staff won't take into account what the three services think? Of course not. Uh, he has his responsibility, and he will run the committee of the other chiefs, and, and I'm sure he'll get very clear uh, views from them as to which way they, they feel it should go. But at the end of the day, somewhere, somebody's going to take that decision and not keep on arguing and arguing about it. How long, Lord Levine, before we see some of the results of your recommendations? I don't know. You know we've made a report. The report has been accepted by the Defence Secretary. I think the military are ready to get on with it. It's a question of how long it's going to take them to, to do it. Uh, I hope it'll be pretty soon. But it's a big job. You know, I, I served six years in the Ministry of Defence myself when I was responsible for procurement. And uh, it took us a, a good part of that time to get that under control. But, you know, we won't, we won't get anywhere if everyone just sits around and talks about it. Somebody's got to get on with it. And I, I hope that a good part of this will happen fairly soon. And on that note, we shall leave it. Lord Levine, thanks for your time today. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Michael Codner, Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute, and our Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. Michael Codner, how significant do you think the shake-up really is? Well, uh, as the report has presented it, this is the most significant shake-up since the Heseltine reforms of the uh, 1980s, and there are some themes in it which are really continuity, things that Heseltine might have wanted to do, but because of the British way of step-by-step, um, step, didn't actually happen like. then. Well, in particular... Um, uh, taking the heads of service out of the Defence Board, what Heseltine did was reduce uh, the scale of the ser single service presence in the Ministry hugely and put an awful lot of responsibilities into the centre from them. Um, interestingly, some of what's going to come out of this is giving them back uh, that empowerment, but at a lower level, um, and there's some interesting problems associated with that. Christopher Lee, this is very much a structural change if the recommendations are actually uh, put into practice. Uh, will servicemen and women really notice any difference? It's certainly not at the moment. No, it won't touch, touch them at all. But you see, if you go back, uh, most people in the services don't notice these sort of things. Um, but if you go back over the past, let's say, five or six years, the House Commons Defence Committee, the Public Accounts Committee, the Auditor General have all reported on the deficiencies in the Defence Ministry at different things. What Lord Levine is doing is one aspect of it, making a report and recommendations, 
but it's not the order to move. The other thing, that, as Michael says, that uh, when uh, uh, now Lord Heseltine tried to do some of this thing, these sort of things in the 1980s, he couldn't do it, nor could what went wrong? Lord Levine. Well, the first thing, remember, there was a Cold War on in the 1980s. I mean, Michael Heseltine came in, we were just deploying Pershing II and cruise missiles into the United Kingdom. The atmosphere was totally different. Now we're doing this in the background of a huge financial crisis. It's all about, it's all about structuring in this, these announcements, isn't it, Michael? But really, it's, the fundamental thing is it's about money, sorting out the budgets. And we've only just heard in the last 24 hours that defence planning round, uh, which was supposed to be coming out in July, has been deferred till October. Well, uh, the problems with um, the Strategic Defence Security Review uh, cuts were that they didn't see through to make the necessary cuts over the next five years that are needed in all the detail. They only hit some big items, and it was clear that there had to be a lot more work done. There was a three-month study set up, which is due to report shortly, which is the next level of cuts, uh, and these could be some which are as significant as the ones in SDSR. But, uh, until... It's very difficult to keep track of all these different things that are going on to try and balance the books. Well, it? there are a lot more um, studies too uh, reporting in the next few days or weeks. But uh, to pull all that together, the question is whether you try and do it before the summer recess or after it. And if it's after, then it goes on and on. <laughs> Let's go back to your original question. Uh, does this affect some guy in, in Helmand? The answer is no, but by the autumn, there'll be at least, I think, three, four, Michael, four reports or, or whatever that will be come to us, and we'll be talking about it. Those are the things such as cuts, less spending, uh, cuts in the estate, where do, you, where do you actually base people? It'll be involved with the economy. Yesterday, in the EU, nobody will take any notice of this, but in the EU yesterday, there was a demand... Uh, for a 9% increase in EU spending, which the British government is going to fight, but the British government is asked to being put 9% more into EU spending. That is going to, if it goes ahead, that's going to bounce back within 18 months onto defence spending because funds will have to be paid, uh, found to pay for it. Michael, just to go back to that, that famous, now infamous quote, you do the fighting, uh, we'll do the talking. What, where do you think the right balance of power is with defence? Well, uh, there is a lot of sense in, in, in having a single authority that is leading defence through the command structure and down uh, in, into operations and, uh, and uh, reducing the military profile in the defence board I don't think is particularly problematic. I'd agree with General Jackson in, in that sense, provided the Chief of Defence Staff is listened to and he's getting advice through the two committees that are going to work through the heads of service to the chief of defence staff. I don't think that's a big problem. There are other problems with the detail because Levine doesn't get down into the detail of reorganisation and many of those uh, could be problematic. Uh, over the implications for front line, um, it's very much more whether the further cuts in the three-month study, in particular to personnel, um, and also the force generation study, which is about how the forces get their stuff, mm. the, the people, um, into theatre, and that could have big implications for the army in particular. OK, gentlemen, stay with us. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come this week, the last goodbye for Nimrod. I flew for many, 27 different types of aircraft. I think the Nimrod is certainly the best aircraft I've ever flown in. 
Colonel Gaddafi is now a fugitive from international justice, according to the Prime Minister. David Cameron was responding to the arrest warrant issued by the International Criminal Court 100 days after the start of NATO's campaign over Libya. Gaddafi, his son and Libya's intelligence chief are accused of crimes against humanity, ordering the deaths of civilians as officials struggle to put down the country's uprising. Ibrahim Dabashi, Libya's former ambassador to the UN, now represents rebel forces. Those who are working with Gaddafi now, I think they know that they are working with a suspected criminal. I think they have to convince Gaddafi to step down and to uh, try to save his life and the lives of his, uh, his family. But Libya doesn't recognise the ICC and Deputy Foreign Minister Khaled Kahim says the warrants are meaningless. The ICC has become the European equivalent of the U.S. Tribunal at the Guantanamo Bay. Michael Codner from Russia is still with me, as well as Christopher Lee. Christopher, um, this gives Gaddafi every reason to stay on in Libya to the bitter end, doesn't it? Well, he probably didn't need another reason. (laughs) He said he was going to anyway, didn't he? I mean, yeah, Okay. if you say, by the way, you're guilty, and don't forget, this only covers a very short period. It covers the period between February the 18th and February the 28th. A lot's gone on since then. And the other thing that comes up, who's going to arrest him, uh, etc.? It's got to be the rebels if they eventually take over... Uh, But it is a point which, if you've got the ICC, you cannot not say, we're going to indict this fellow. Um, Mladic, could you put him in the same line as Mladic with Milosevic, uh, with Karadic? Uh, Some people might try uh, to do so, but uh, no, he doesn't need any other reason to stay on in in Libya. Is is this anything more than a symbolic gesture, do you think, Michael Codner? Well, it, it, it... Um, does reinforce the legal and moral um, justification for for Western intervention and the intervention of other nations in Libya. Um, so the, that's what it's about, is it? Well, well, well um, not specifically. One of the problems, of course, is it removes any options for Gaddafi of a way out in which he could be safe. There's mm. no deal that can be struck with him now uh, um, with uh, this, um, this uh, initiative having been taken. Mm. Uh, Christopher... Libya doesn't recognise the ICC, um, not really very surprising, but the US doesn't either. That's a bit ironic, isn't it? Uh, well, it's not, because the Americans uh, tend not to recognise anything outside of the Supreme Court uh, in the United States. And there's a very good reason for this, they would say. They would say, for example, if in during an operation uh, something went wrong, something went perhaps potentially unsavoury, uh, nobody can come along and arrest their soldiers and put them in the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and they've always backed off from that sort of thing. I think the important thing here, we've got the ICC. Um, It can't do anything else but actually sort of say, look, there's a war going on. Are we interested in in, in crimes being committed, especially crimes against humanity? But look at what's going on, for example, in other parts of the world, other parts of Africa. Look at Sudan, for example. His president uh, has the same kind of allegations and indictment against him. Yeah, and uh, and this morning he flew to... Uh, to China. Mm. Uh, are the Chinese going to nick him? Well, that, no, I mean, because the it Chinese does make you wonder impo- what's the whole point of it, though, doesn't it, really? Uh, well, ask Miladic, ask Karadic, ask Milosevic. Maybe in about 20 years' time, then, it might be useful, do you think? Uh, if it survives. If it survives, it, it, it might not survive. But I think that, that the reality of all this is on the ground today, isn't it? For example, the French have admitted that they have been arming the, the rebels. The, mm. the rebels. Um, this would seem to contravene 
the 19, resolution 1973, United Nations 1973, which is the reason that we're there, the legal reason that we are there. It shows the difficulties within NATO, the different approaches to what's going on, the NATO countries that are part- participating in it. You can see why the Americans have sort of tried to keep it very much at arm's length. The American uh, Congress has been saying, no, this is not an act of war as far as the American definitions are concerned, and mm-hmm. you haven't got full full support for this. That is the complication of then you, the ICC standing up and saying, oh, by the way, on top of all this, <laughs> on top of all these difficulties, Gaddafi is what some of us thought anyway, not playing fair and square. So, Michael, do you think the rebels will go out there and arrest him then? That, that could be one outcome. There are an awful lot of others. There could be assassinations. There could be all sorts of things. I mean, uh, one of the problems with uh, giving this moral and legal mandate to the intervention forces, uh, which supports the arming of rebels and all of these things, which are not covered by the UN resolution, means that, of course, if the Gaddafi regime does collapse, then you're putting huge responsibilities on the intervention forces for sorting out the problem that will be left, which is could well be the sort that's of the Iraq... Pro- that's the fear, Afghanistan isn't it? It's the problem. future. And unless the United Nations is going to say, it's all right, we'll sort that out, which they're unlikely to be able to do, um, you're left with the NATO problem at looking after the, the Libya that's left behind. The Americans would say... And the Americans don't want to do that. No, the no. Americans would we say that. that you have an internal war, you have a war, it is up to the winners of that war internally to look after the justice after the war. And the example of that is Saddam Hussein. Which could be a lot of atrocities, of course, conducted by the rebels. On that note, stay with us, gentlemen. News, discussion and analysis. This is SITREP on BFBS. Robert Gates steps down this week after four years as US Defence Secretary. His has been an odd journey, serving under both George W. Bush and Barack Obama. As part of the Obama administration, he tried to heal the wounds widely blamed on his combative predecessor, Donald Rumsfeld. But he ended his time at the Pentagon attacking Europe's performance in the campaign over Libya and in a speech earlier this month in Brussels accused some in Europe of freeloading. If you told the American taxpayers, as I just did, that they're bearing 75% of the financial burden of the alliance, this is going to raise eyebrows. We cannot afford to have some troop-contributing nations pull out their forces on their own timeline in a way that undermines the mission and increases the risks for other allies. What I've sketched out is the real possibility for a dim, if not dismal, future for the transatlantic alliance. So, what's the verdict on Robert Gates? On the line is Michael Stathis, Professor of International Relations at the University of Utah. Professor Stathis, thanks for your time today. Robert Gates started trying to build bridges in Europe and ended just as angry as Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, What happened? I think that it was time for him to retire. Um, He has uh, been around for a very, very long time. Uh, He has been described as a consummate uh, professional. He has served no less than four American presidents, uh, in various capacities, uh, and uh, Democrats and Republicans. He's also served as president of uh, Texas A&M uh, uh, University. Um, and uh, in all of that, he has had to be uh, someone who uh, adapted from, uh, in some cases, one extreme to, uh, uh, to, to another. And uh, I think he finally came to the end of, uh, of the road, that there were just some things here that... Uh, 
uh, he didn't want to adapt to again and uh, decided to uh, ride off into the sunset, as we would say. So at the end of the road, it was time for him to retire. This criticism of European attitudes to NATO, was that what he thought all along then? You know, that's a good question. And um, uh, one uh, might wonder just what he was doing there in the first place when uh, Obama was elected president uh, a couple of years ago. And what was he doing there? I think that, in my opinion, um, I think that uh, what Obama was doing in holding on to Gates uh, from the uh, George W. Bush administration, it was a necessary holdover from that administration to uh, lend a degree of continuity in, uh, in defense policy. And I'm afraid a certain sense of credibility to uh, to Obama uh, on uh, in, in in terms of defense uh, uh, questions, uh, particularly concerning uh, Afghanistan and uh, the ongoing um, uh, campaign against terrorism. Indeed, and his his view that America is getting tired of bankrolling Europe's defense, I suppose, is quite a useful view for him to express at this time in the U.S. I, I think it is, and I, but I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. Um, I, I think that uh, there is, there have also been behind the closed doors uh, 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 conflicts between the White House and uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense in terms of uh, tactics and strategies in Afghanistan uh, concerning uh, terror, and most recently in, in Libya. Uh, Gates, I think, is uh, more of a, uh, a traditional uh, uh, defensive thinker, uh, and in that sense, the idea of, uh, if you will, boots on the ground uh, and numbers of, uh, of, of people uh, have uh, been foremost in his mind, and uh, Obama uh, has been trying to think uh, in a different way, one, to uh, uh, pull troops out of Afghanistan to avoid troops on the ground uh, in, in Libya. Uh, headlines on MSNBC this morning, of course, uh, uh, talk about how uh, Obama uh, uh, wants to turn more to surgical strikes against al-Qaeda uh, rather than what we've been doing uh, doing in the past. And I, and, I, and I think that this, you know, shows that there was a certain amount of tension uh, with, uh, with, with Gates, uh, the, you know, different, uh, different types of thinking. And I think it really started to come to a head with the, the Libya situation and the necessity in that operation uh, for cooperation with NATO. In that light, then, what do you think the departure of Robert Gates and the arrival of Liam Panetta, his replacement, will have on defence? Uh, I think it's going to be almost a dramatic turnaround. Um, I think that uh, with Leon, Leon Panetta uh, in office, I think that uh, there's going to be more of a tendency towards uh, new uh, ideas uh, in defense strategy, particularly concerning uh, uh, terrorism, things that Obama is more comfortable with. Um, I think that we're also going to see uh, a move towards uh, very serious uh, uh, cuts in defense spending. Um, of course, the major issue right now, um, uh, as we are nearing a presidential election uh, a year, uh, is uh, the, the economy, and uh, uh, spending is going to be a major part of that. And this is a president who has uh, commented over and over again that uh, defense uh, cannot be immune. It has to be on the table uh, uh, in, in terms of budget cuts. All right, Professor Michael Stathis from the University of Utah, thanks for your time today. 
The Nimrod R1 spy plane made its final flight this week during a ceremony at RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire. Granted a brief reprieve to join the operation against Libya, time's now up for the Nimrod despite the campaign to save it. Ron Gad and James Fell, both now retired, remember the Nimrod coming into service almost 40 years ago. The Comet was a very nice aeroplane, but it, it didn't have the performance or the carrying capacity to do what the Nimrod can do. I flew for many, 27 different types of aircraft. I think the Nimrod was certainly the best aircraft I've ever flown. Scrapping Nimrod leaves Britain without surveillance aircraft until its replacement, the Rivet Joint, arrives in 2014. But the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Dalton, isn't worried. There are other ways in which, perhaps less efficiently, but nevertheless, we can achieve the aim in the short term. That means that we're not going to get the same quality, but we can still do the job. Therefore, it is, of course, an issue to make sure we don't allow our total capability to be reduced to the point where it can no longer deliver, but actually we'll be able to do the job just as when we get the American aircraft in, it will be a much more efficient and effective way. Christopher Lee and Michael Codner are both still with me. Uh, Michael, Stephen Dalton says we can do the job without Nimrod. Is he right? Well, it's interesting. It's the Chief of the Air Staff saying that. When uh, the cuts were made in the Strategic Defence and Security Review, uh, to some extent it was the services making their own decisions internally and if it's fast jets that are going to be cut or Nimrod, then Nimrod, which is also rather doomed because of a procurement reputation um, uh, associated with it and overspends in uh, new versions of the Nimrod um, was a strong uh, candidate for being cut for that reason. Uh, Christopher, if another scenario similar to Libya were to arise in, say, two years' time, how would we cope without Nimrod? Well, you would do it in a different way. That how would you The do chief it? of the defence staff, would you use <laughs> other assets, for example, you use satellite, you use information that comes, for example, from the French, uh, from, from perhaps the Americans who are still flying the Orion aircraft. You've got to remember that the Nimrod, again, is, a, is an aircraft of the Cold War, where its main job was uh, ASW, uh, anti-submarine warfare, command and control, search and rescue, etc. And this particular one was going anyway. It's been extended. It's been extended for the past time. Fascinating that we bought it in the first place because nobody in Europe, which is the way of buying things now, Mm. could make up their minds about buying the American AWACS. And there we must leave it. Thanks for your time, Michael Codner from Roosie and Christopher Lee. Do get in touch if you have any thoughts about the topics we've covered this week. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. I'm Kate Sherbo. Thanks for listening. This is Sitrep on BFBS.